0: As we are, of course, thinking about the, the end of the Gospels, not the last time we see Jesus in the narrative. There's a couple more times in the narrative. I wouldn't call Revelation the narrative. Uh, Revelation, we'll talk about next week, the Jesus, Jesus' appearance in Revelation. But in the story of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. Of course, the, the focus shifts to the apostles as Jesus intended in John chapter 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We looked at this last week. Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And of course, the apostles are supposed to pick up the, the work of Jesus, right? God sends Jesus to earth and then Jesus says, okay, he sent me, now I'm sending you. You're gonna go do this. And that's, of course, what the word apostle means. Apostle means one who is sent. Somebody who is an emissary, an ambassador, someone sent on a particular task by someone else. And so there's one more major encounter with Jesus post-ascension. Of course, the book of Acts begins with Jesus talking to them uh, before he's ascended. Then he ascends. And then there's one more encounter with Jesus. One more person that Jesus calls to be one who is sent, to be an apostle. There's a one final instance of this. And this encounter that we're going to look at in Acts 9, and 26, Acts 9 is the original, uh, the encounter as it appears in uh, the flow of the story. And then Acts 22 and Acts 26, Paul is recalling it. He is, is saying this is a thing that happened back in Acts chapter 9. Now, I want to make a note. You're going to see as you, you, if you get the handout on the way out the door. Because of that there's a tent or there's a, a first person, third person shift, right? In Acts chapter 9, it's a narrative. It's the story that's being told by Luke. And then in Acts chapter 22 and Acts 26, it switches to I because Paul is recalling the story later. So for the blended account, but you'll see, I have made it all first person as if Paul is recalling the whole story. In Acts chapter 9, it's not first person. We understand that. But to make the blended text fit together, it's really weird if you have it switching back and forth between uh, he did this or I did this. So it's all unified. And in this encounter, we see Paul, well, he's really Saul, uh, his conversion story we see the grace that Jesus is offering. The grace that Jesus is offering in the Christian worldview, in the kingdom of God that has come, right? He has ascended. He's sending the apostles to establish the kingdom and the grace that is on offer in this kingdom, but also what that grace obligates in those who follow. And so we see first the incredible depth of Jesus' grace toward, and I'm I'm gonna, I know it's gonna happen. You just gotta go with it towards Paul slash Saul. I'm going to switch sort of probably at random because my brain is that way. Paul is, he is Saul. These are the same person. He changes his name later on. But in the story in Acts chapter 9, he's Saul. And then later on, he switches to Paul, Jesus, the incredible grace that he is offering. We begin this story in Acts chapter 26, verse nine. This is him recalling it later. Now, his recollection of his sins fluctuates a bit from account to account. We have Acts chapter nine, we have uh, Acts chapter 22, and then we have Acts chapter 26. We also have some recollections in Galatians. We have some recollections in the Corinthian letters. Uh, Paul fluctuates a bit as he recalls his sin. Sometimes he sort of underplays it. This is the worst. This is him at his most bare, his most raw, recalling the kind of person that he was. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's in a raging fury contrasted with self-control, right? Self-control being one of the fruit of the spirit. Paul here, as he's recalling this, I'm not really, I I know I need to do this. He felt like I need to to do this and to oppose Jesus, but there's a a level of of lack of self-control here. That he's doing this not because he's logically thought through, hey, this is the thing I need to do, but because he's letting his anger overwhelm him, right? He's in a raging fury. And it kind of sounds like maybe he's even torturing them, right? It's hard to tell in the text. I punished them in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. The word punish could be translated a variety of ways. Trying to, at the bare minimum, he's trying to entrap them. Bare minimum. Maybe he's trying to do this sort of linguistically, make them stumble and blaspheme. Why does he want them to blaspheme? Because if he can make them blaspheme, he has a license to take them and have them put in prison and ultimately be put to death, right? So he's ultimately, at the end of the day, trying to get them to be punished. Is he doing that linguistically? Is he doing it physically? It's it's impossible to say. But it's not just that he's getting them and putting them in prison and casting them to death. He's trying to orchestrate events to make that happen. How can I get them into a compromising situation? How can I get them into a position where I can I can do this to them. Right? So again, we're thinking about his kind of attitude here. And he does recall it in 1st Timothy 1, one of the other times where he recalls sort of who he used to be. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. The thing that he's trying to get them to do, that's what he calls himself. He's trying to get them to blaspheme, to speak evil of God, to ascribe to God something wrong or false. He's saying I was was that way. I was the blasphemer. And by extension, if we're, if we're thinking through this, the logic of his statement here, I was trying to make them blaspheme so I could have them put to death. I deserved death. I was the blasphemer. But I received grace, or I received mercy rather because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's interesting, he says, okay, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, but I, he's not letting himself off the hook here. I am the foremost of sinners. Maybe I was ignorant, but that doesn't excuse it. Maybe I had unbelief, but that doesn't make it okay. I was doing wrong. I was doing evil. I was putting Christians to death. I was trying to trap them and trick them. I was opposing Jesus. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why honor and glory forever and ever? Because of his perfect patience. The patience that he exhibits for Paul that he is offering to us. And so Paul epitomizes one of the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Paul is the epitome of this. He's forgiven much and loves much. And that's what's on offer, right? This principle that applies today. We could think about what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers. All of this list of stuff, and this is not an an exhaustive list. We could put more in here. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of us. He says you here, but we should put us. Such were some of us. Enemies of the cross. Maybe ignorant, maybe in unbelief you want to give yourself that out, but that didn't excuse Paul. It doesn't excuse us, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord, or in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. If this grace was offered to Paul, the question, of course, who should it be offered to today, and who are we to limit who it's available to? Paul the foremost the chief of sinners, some versions say. Paul, who is doing the best that he can to make sure that Christians die, who has offered this grace to change, the chance to turn around and do something different. And again, we could say this more personally, it kind of doesn't matter what you've done, right? I think about the people in this room. I don't know all the dark secrets of your past. You've probably got some stuff. Maybe not murder, I would suspect, most of us in this room. But whatever it is you got going on, grace is offered to you. But the grace that Jesus offered is accompanied by expectation. The expectation of risk, sacrifice, and obedience. Acts 9 verse 10, one of the side characters of this sort of conversion story, Ananias. The story is is centered on Saul, aka Paul. Ananias has a role to play, and we see in Acts chapter 9. Ananias is already a believer. He's already received this grace. He's somebody who's already accepted the truth of Jesus. There is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Paul, aka Saul, he's, he's not unknown. He's a famous opponent. He's one who has chased them from town to town. He's punished them in the synagogues. He's cast his vote against them. And Ananias, what risk... Is he being expected to take on? Okay, you've received this grace, Ananias. There's some obligation. And of course, Jesus is going to reassure him. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But in Ananias' mind, this is dangerous. He is here to put people like me in prison. Are you sure you want me to go see him? Really? Ananias is expected, of course, to obey as a recipient of the, the grace of Jesus. He's expected to obey this command, even if Ananias is uneasy about it. Even if this is, in Ananias' mind, dangerous. Of course, more specifically to Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias, you think you got it bad? Don't worry about it. Saul's got it way worse. Ananias, this is dangerous. This is risky. Go do this, because I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer. And of course, in the flow of the story, right, Paul, who had been persecuting and and causing much suffering among the church, Jesus turns around and says, okay, I'm going to offer this grace to to Saul, but this grace is going to be accompanied by some suffering, some difficulty some hardship. Acts chapter 22, Paul's recalling this later. Acts chapter 22, verse 14. He said, "...the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one." This is the—in the text, it's weird. This is in Acts chapter 22. Paul is telling a story and he's t- saying what Ananias said. Ananias is the speaker here. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to do uh, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias is told some of the things that Paul's going to have to do. He tells it to Paul. But I want to note that Saul is still expected to obey. Just because he's seen this vision of Jesus, Jesus has appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He has arrived and and given Paul this grace. He's still expected to obey, right? The basics of the gospel. Rise and be immersed and wash away your sins. The grace that Paul received was not attachment free. He's expected to obey the gospel. And then more than that, he's expected to Follow through on the mission that God has for him, even though it's going to be difficult. There's going to be a lot of suffering. He's going to be stoned at one point. He's going to be run from town to town. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to be in in various places. He says, I was destitute. I was poor. I was hungry. Sometimes I was even afraid for my life. But that's what comes with the grace. Can't have one without the other. The risk, the sacrifice, the obedience. That's the other half. It's great, hooray, God gives us grace, hooray for me. But that grace entails a mission, a responsibility, an obligation to carry out the mission that Jesus has for us, which was his own mission, right? The grace of Jesus calls us to a mission that is as broad in scope as his grace is. If his grace is is all-encompassing and all-reaching and infinite, that's the scope of the mission which is what he tells to Paul. He says to Paul in Acts chapter 26, Paul again recalling this later on, Acts 26, 15. I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose. And Paul gets to know the, the nice purpose that, and I say nice, he gets to know in great detail the exact purpose that God has for him. For us, it's it's a little less clear, right? We have the broad scope of God's mission, the purpose that he calls for us. It is in principle the same as Paul's. It's going to look different for everybody the exact details of your purpose, but it it serves the same thing that Paul's did, right? I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people uh, and from the Gentiles, To whom I am sending you, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of God, uh, power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The mission is to extend this grace of Jesus, grace that we presumably have received, right? Presumably I've received this grace. I was lost and dead in my sins. I I was separated from God. I've been united with him. My sins have been forgiven. Hooray! But... Then bring that to others, the grace that is offered so that you may open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The mission is to extend this grace of Jesus to anyone and everyone, regardless of their history, their race, their nationality. And that's Ananias' hang up here. Are you sure he deserves grace? Yes, Ananias, he does. Not that he deserves it, because nobody does but you're going to sit, give it to him anyway. And that's our mission, isn't it? We could combine a couple of these as Acts chapter 9 and 22. If we combine a bit of these stories in the, the, to Ananias' interaction with Paul. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He came to me and standing by and laying his hands on me, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive your sight. And immediately something like scales fell from my eyes and I regained my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. This is it. This sentence, the bold and underlined sentence, this is the Christian mission in its most distilled form. Be a witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's it. That's the whole mission. The things you've seen and heard about Jesus, you've experienced his grace, his love, you know his truth, you know the things that he's taught, whatever that is that you've experienced of him. The same basic truth for everyone, but you've got parts of that that are unique to you. The things that have been forgiven in your life, the experiences that you have had with his grace. The same universal truth that Paul has commanded, right? Rise, be immersed and wash away your sins. But this is your job as much as it was Paul's. And the question is, are you even trying? Are you making any effort at all to fulfill this mission? That's what the grace demands. The grace of Jesus demands that you extend that grace to others. That's the bare minimum of your mission. To tell what you have seen and heard. It may seem heavy, heavy, this mission. The task that God has given us At times can be difficult. At times can be heavy, especially if we're thinking about conflicts within families, conflicts with friends, persecution in the world, which we have it pretty easy in this country. Other places they don't. So I want to end with what I think might be the most profound statement in the entire encounter. As Saul is on the way to Damascus to capture uh, Christians, Put them in prison, vote against them. Jesus appears to him in this majestic light that shines all around. And what happens? Acts chapter 9, 22 and 26. I've combined again the, the texts here. When we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, I, I do, I, I oh, man, I really wish we had intonation here. Like, how is Jesus saying this? Is he angry? Is he pondering, questioning? Like, what what is the emphasis here? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Remember what Paul had been doing, right? He's taking Christian captives. He's maybe torturing them into blasphemy. He's voting for their deaths. And yet, as Paul is doing this, who did Jesus think that Paul was persecuting? It's not the Christians. He is persecuting Christians. But why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting them? Not why are you persecuting my followers? Not why are you persecuting these Christians? Why are you persecuting me? I am the one you are persecuting. And here's the point. When you suffer, Jesus suffers. When you are persecuted, Jesus feels it. When you experience loss and heartache and difficulty and sorrow, so does Jesus. Because the grace that he offers is not just forgiveness. It's not just mercy. It's not just heaven. It is perfect unity with him. You think about passages like Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. We are his body. When he nourishes and cherishes us, he does that because we are him. We are his. And so when we suffer, when we experience pain, he feels it. Because we are his. First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. When we receive the grace of Jesus, we're united with him perfectly. What we feel, he feels. What happens to us, happens to him. That's the kind of relationship that is on offer. When we offer the invitation, right? That's what we're offering. To be so perfectly united with him, because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his love, that you take on his aspect, his character, and that goes both ways. One of the reasons the mission then is so important, the thing that we're called to do, the risk and the sacrifice and the obedience, is because the things that make Jesus sad, the things that make Jesus feel sorrow, should make me feel sorrow and sadness. That should be a two-way street. Jesus offers that grace We referenced it in the communion, right? As he's on the cross, suffering in incredible agony and pain and misery, he's looking around and who is he thinking of? Not himself. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. Why he came in the first place? Because he loves the lost. He loves people. He loves his creation. And so why that mission is so important. We receive grace from Jesus. And we extend that grace from others because we understand that their lostness, the lost in the world, make him hurt, make him suffer, make him feel sorrow. And I want to alleviate that the best I can. He takes on my pain. He takes on my sorrow. He takes on my suffering. And I should do the same. And so we offer the invitation. The invitation first to be united with Christ to feel that experience of perfect unity with him to experience the grace. Again, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what sins you've committed. His grace is bigger than that. Ultimately, the same thing that Paul was called to, right? Why do you wait? Rise and be immersed. Wash away your sins. But then no. the second part of the invitation to those of us who have experienced that grace That grace comes with a task. To carry that grace to others. And so I invite you to be a part of that work as well. Maybe you don't know what to do. You're not sure where you fit in with that. Come talk to us. We have ways for you to serve, to be a part of that mission. So that you can share his grace with others.